everybody. Welcome to the New Market Alliance Church Podcast. For more information on the vision, programs, and news of our church, be sure to check us out at www.newmarketalliance.ca. We'd like to encourage you as well that no podcast, no matter how good, can substitute for the experience of joining together in person at a worship celebration. That's where God really meets people, often through the love and ministry of others. At NAC, we meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. Now let's join this week's teaching. Well, good morning, church. Great to have you with us on this long weekend. You look beautiful out there, mostly because I can't see you. Just kidding. You actually look, you look great. You look great. For those who don't know me, I'm Glenn. I'm the youth and worship pastor here at NAC. And it's my privilege to be up here and get to share with you my holy discontent as we continue in our summer series. So if you'd open your Bible or your Bible app, I'm also going to have it on the screen. We're going to be starting the first part of the morning in John 6, and the second half we're going to transition to 1 Corinthians 12. But before that, I've just got a little story for you. So back in high school, my brother Jeffrey and I had an acquaintance. You know, not really friends, just someone you know, you see around places, spend time with. Someone I would never reach out to hang with, but you know. I gotta admit, I'm getting some looks from you right now, like, wow, what a jerk. (laughs) Okay, let's look. Every one of you, go on your Instagram, Facebook, whatever. I want you to scroll through that list. Tell me how many of those people are actually your friends, how many of them you even know, okay? We're all in the same playing field here. Acquaintance, he was my acquaintance. So, this guy invites us last minute to a birthday party, and we decide to go. So we get to his house, go down to his basement, where he has maybe three or four other friends. It was a fine night. We played some video games, played some board games, sang happy birthday, had some cake, and then headed out. Now, on my way home, I got a text from this guy. <laughs> the text in its entirety read, cheap, period. To which I responded, I'm sorry? To which he responded, gift, question mark. Now, I don't know about you, but my mouth literally dropped in that moment. Maybe your love language is gifts. Mine is not. It is at the bottom for me. I'm a words guy or a quality time guy. Thank the Lord for my wife, otherwise nobody I know would ever get a birthday gift. <laughs> no joke, my brother Jeffrey and I literally don't get each other gifts ever. I mean, it just seems so pointless for us because we share the same birthday. Anyways, until this year, I've actually never gotten Jeffrey a gift. The only reason I did this year was because Brittany made me do it. (laughs) Actually, that might not be true. There was one time we got each other a gift, but it was the exact same thing, so I don't know if that counts or not. It's kind of like shopping for yourself. Anyways, this morning what I feel like God has laid on my heart for our church is sort of a two-parter. I'm going to start with a concerning trend that we're seeing more and more of in our North American churches and how it literally may be killing our churches and then what I believe to be part of the remedy to that problem. I've titled my talk today, Get on the Field. My holy discontent is spiritual consumerism within the church and the remedy, I believe, is to become participants rather than spectators together in the mission of God. Super broad, I know, but let's jump in and see where the Spirit takes us. So we're going to start John 6, verse 1. 
after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves by those who had eaten. So here, we have one of the more well-known miracles that Jesus performs in his time on earth. Here we have Jesus and his apostles, and then about 5,000 men who've been following Jesus around because of the crazy things that he's been doing. By the way, that's about 5,000 men, which most commentators put it more like 12 to 15,000, maybe as many as 20,000 people when you include women and children. So Jesus sees this crowd coming and says to his disciple Philip, in verse 5, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He says, hey, Phil, you're from around here. Where are the local grocery stores? Do you know any good food trucks? And in verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now, 200 denarii would be equivalent to about eight months' wages of an average worker. Philip is saying, Jesus, come on. We can't feed all these people. Even if someone gave us eight months of their annual salary, most people wouldn't even get a bite. Then in verse 8, we get one of my favorite parts of this passage. It's definitely not the point of the text, but it's in here, and I want to look at it quick. In verse 8, it says, One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Do you see what's happening here? Andrew steals this kid's lunchbox and has faith for a few seconds, but he loses it by the end of the sentence. You see this? He starts out saying, there's a boy here. He's got five barley loaves and two fish. He starts out with faith saying, Jesus, you've got a kid's lunchable here. Maybe we could use it. But then the reality and the weight of the situation weighs on him. And he says, but what are they for so many? This little lunch is like a drop in the bucket for this huge crowd. Man, that should encourage us. How many times have you had faith in God doing something, and then maybe months or weeks or hours or even moments later, (coughs) you've watched that faith disappear? Our boy Andrew, he has faith for a second, and then we watch it vanish by the end of the sentence. And Jesus doesn't condemn him for it. 
We're about to see Jesus is going to use this tiny, fleeting amount of faith to move the mountains in their lives. We should take encouragement from that, friends. So now back to the main story. Jesus performs this crazy miracle, takes a kid's lunch, multiplying it, feeds about 15,000 people. They have their fill, and then they still have 12 baskets of leftovers. Now, if we had time to do a more in-depth look at this passage, we would see that it's actually full of a number of parallels between the Old Testament and the Passover and what's happening. And that this, this moment is actually a sign pointing to Jesus not being just a good teacher or a prophet or a healer, but that he is the Messiah, that he is the only Son of God and the Savior of the world. You see, how you view Jesus matters. Here's a quote from C.S. Lewis. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. As we keep going in this passage, we're going to see why this is so important, how you view Jesus. So Jesus has fed the 5,000, more like 15, and then the disciples head across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus performs another crazy miracle that we don't have time to focus on where he walks across the water, meets them in the middle of a storm, and safely gets them to the other side. Now, once they're at the other side, the crowd figures out that Jesus had left, and they follow him across to the other side. So here we'll jump back in our story at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. This is where we get a glimpse of my holy discontent of spiritual consumerism. In verse 2, back at the beginning, we saw that a large crowd was following him because they saw signs that he was doing on the sick. And then again in verse 26, Jesus answered them saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Jesus is calling out the crowd. He's saying, you aren't seeking me because you see that I am God. You see that I'm the Son of God and the only way to true life. You're just seeking me because I filled your bellies and you want me to feed you again. You're going to jump down to verse 35. He goes on. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. The crowd continue to have a back-and-forth conversation with Jesus about what this means, 
Jesus is confronting some of their previously held beliefs, and then he gives them the offer of true life. And then we see how the conversation ends down in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, this large, large crowd that was following Jesus around was just using Jesus. They started following him because of the miracles he was doing. And then even more so because they got to experience a miracle. They got to eat from five loaves and two breads, or two fish. The problem was that they never saw the miracles as signs that he was the Son of God, just as an opportunity to get things out of him and to be set free from some brokenness in their lives. Jesus is confronting them, saying, you guys are just wanting to be fed, but I am the real bread. Just as C.S. Lewis was saying, you either have to accept of what Jesus says that he is Lord or he's a lunatic or a liar, but there's no in-between. The crowd was confronted that day with wanting parts of Jesus and parts of his teaching, but not everything. And when he offered them more, they got scared off because they only wanted to use him. Jesus gave them what seems to be a beautiful promise, that this bread you seek will only satisfy for a few hours, and then you'll come back wanting more. But I am the bread of life that will sustain you and give you life in this life and in eternity to come. All it costs is for your life fully surrendered to Jesus. And that was the stumbling point. They didn't want to submit to Jesus in everything. They just wanted to witness his cool tricks. Many in our day, just like in Jesus' day, want to be fed. We want to reap all the benefits without any of the cost. We want all the gifts, but don't want the giver. Just like my story at the beginning with my acquaintance and his birthday. Yes, it probably would have been nice for me to get him a birthday gift. But he was more concerned with the gift that he could have received than spending time with the giver. See, I believe that spiritual consumerism is one of, if not the most significant plague on the North American church. Did you know that Christianity is growing and in some cases exploding in every other continent except North America? The North American church has adapted the consumerism of our culture. We are inundated with advertising and social media telling us that we have to have it all, that you deserve the best, that you should be able to be more productive with less effort. We are bombarded by the Walmarts and the Amazons of the world where we can find anything we could possibly want and have it on our doorstep in two days. We live these glorified lives on Instagram where every marriage is perfect and we live such exciting lives. We deserve the best service, the hot, fresh food, or we're sending it back and you're definitely not getting a good tip. Heck, you don't even know to, need to go to a restaurant anymore. You can just order on Skip the Dishes and it's delivered to your door in minutes. We need the nicest cars, the new clothes, shoes, and the newest phone because everything around us is screaming that we need and deserve the best. And then we come here to church, 
And just like most other areas of our lives, now we are here to consume. So if the pastor isn't as good as the one from the megachurches you listen to online, or he isn't funny enough, the worship is too slow, too fast, they only play new music, they only play hymns, if the children's program is too small, if it's too big, if the greeters are too huggy, if... <laughs> I know. If the online presence is lacking, if the service is too long, or if the coffee isn't as good as your Starbucks venti ice skinny caramel macchiato sugar-free extra salt... Oh, I messed it up. I gotta try that again. Venti, ice skinny caramel macchiato, sugar free syrup, extra shot, light ice, no whip. I literally Googled a ridiculous order. Danita, is that what you're drinking? Close. If our coffee isn't as good as that, then we move on to the next church because we feel like we're not being fed. Well, good because we were never meant to feed you. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the only true bread of life that we should be trying to be fed from. I want to lovingly say that if we're your fourth church in the last six years, we're not going to be enough for you. We were never meant to be enough for you. If you're looking for the perfect church where you can come, sit back, enjoy, drop off your kids, be entertained for an hour, and then leave... We're just never going to be that perfect church for you. And I also want to lovingly say that if you're bored with your faith, you have probably turned your faith into something to be consumed rather than pursuing the mission of God. Can't say amen, I ought to say ouch. Just before Jesus left the earth to return to heaven, he left us with this mission that all Christian faith, all Christian life is meant to be lived around. Matthew 28, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, true Christian faith is a fight. So many of us are just trying to do this good Christian thing where we try to not swear and don't drink too much and don't watch R-rated movies and then come to church on Sundays. We have not been saved by grace through faith for navel-gazing moral betterment, of not wanting to do bad, to have nice, cushy, trouble-free, suffering-free life. We have been saved by grace through faith to get on the mission of Christ to be a disciple, and to be a disciple maker. Man, if we could ever get this, this would take us from being spectators to participants in the gospel. And Jesus may actually be able to do incredible things through us. Every single week, Jonathan ends our morning by thanking you for all coming to church, but now would you go be the church? Many of us smile now because we know it's coming. I know we're hearing it, but I have to wonder if we're actually hearing it. It's not just a cutesy saying because he doesn't know how else to release us at the end of the service. It's a weekly reminder and a weekly challenge that we need to get out of the stands and get on the field. Church was never meant to be a hobby where we live our lives throughout the week 
and then come to church on Sundays if it works with our schedules, and, and then we go back to the world with Jesus having little to no effect on our day-to-day lives. If you're here just to hear someone preach, sing some songs, and then have no desire to allow Jesus to transform your life, that's a super lame hobby. If that's all this is to you, man, if I were you, I'd be out. I'd be hunting or fishing or something rather than coming to this lame hobby. Jesus has called us up and into so much more than just showing up here on Sundays and then going on with the rest of our lives throughout the week. All right, let's breathe for a second. For the remaining time, we're going to jump over to 1 Corinthians 12 together. 1 Corinthians 12 is all about spiritual gifts within the church. Back in March, Jonathan did an excellent job working through what the various gifts are in 1 Corinthians. So I'm not going to go into them. I'm just going to point back to that, that if you, if you want more information about the gifts or a specific gift, go listen to that back in March. I just want to bring us back to the spiritual gifts to say that it is time for many of us to stop being spectators in this Christian mission and start being participants. And the gifts are one of the best ways that I know to get us there. So let's read 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, then you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. At that moment, at the moment of faith, the Holy Spirit began to reside in your heart and give you one or multiple gifts, spiritual gifts. See, the passage here lists some of them, but there are also other partial lists in Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. If we look at verse 11, it says, All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. See, the Holy Spirit will give you gifts as he sees fit. Each gift is beautiful and necessary for the health of the church. We don't have time, but if you look down in verses 12 to 26, we see Paul's imagery of the body, where he says, foot can't say to the hand, I'm not a part of the body. And the eye can't say to the hand, well, I have no need of you. Every single body part is perfectly crafted and needed to form the body. Again, I'm skimming by all of this because Jonathan did a much more in-depth look in March. If you feel like I'm skimping, go back and listen to that one. The point that I want to highlight from this text is verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. Notice it doesn't say for the good of the recipient. It doesn't even say for the good of the giver. It says every one of you 
if you have faith in Jesus and have been filled with the Holy Spirit, then you have been given a gift or gifts for the good of others. That means you and you and you and you. Every one of us has a role to play in the mission of Christ. That is to go and make disciples. But in our North American churches, it seems like we have it all backwards. See, my job as the youth and worship pastor and Jonathan's and Chris's jobs as the pastors of this church are not primarily to do the work of ministry. What? Okay, hear me out. Let's look at Ephesians 4:11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. See, our jobs as your pastors, and I'll also throw in their elders and key ministry leaders, our jobs are not to do the work of ministry primarily. It is our jobs to equip the saints, that's all of you, to do the work of ministry. Our job is to walk alongside you, to help you see things in yourself that maybe you don't see, to help train you in the gifts that you've received from the Holy Spirit, and then set you loose into the world to use your giftings on the mission of Christ. But in our culture, we have it all backwards. It's not the three of us or the 10 or 20 key leaders at NAC are the ministers. It's that NAC has 150 or 200 ministers. Every one of us who have been uniquely gifted by the Holy Spirit to make disciples all around us. It's like when I played competitive baseball in high school. We would practice every Saturday morning. It would be far earlier than I would choose to wake up. We would run laps, do warm-ups, and then do drill after drill after drill after drill. Now, there is no way that I would have stayed on that team if all we ever did was practice. But that's the point. We didn't practice hard just to watch some other team play. We practiced hard each Saturday because we got to play later that week. If you've been practicing Christianity for two or five or 30 years and never stepped out onto the field and picked up the bat, I just have to lovingly ask, what are we doing here? What is the point? You know your Bible. You've been in church. We sing all the songs. You lift your hands at the right moment. You say amen at the right moment. We don't do this in any other area of our life, right? For my teachers, what is the point in making a lesson plan so you can teach your students? You're not going to make a business deal, but then never execute on it. You're not going to design something, but never build it. That's crazy. Nowhere else in life are we content practicing and planning, but then never pulling the trigger. So what does this look like for us? The first step, I would say, is probably just asking yourself if you're going to be in or you're going to be out. We are not overly interested in putting on a show for you to come if you feel like it, if there's nothing better to do that day. Be entertained, encouraged, and then walk out these doors and do nothing for the mission of Christ. We're not here to put on a concert. See, at a concert, you show up, the chairs are all set, 
the stage and the lights are ready to go, the sound and the musicians are set and practiced. And then you just come and enjoy. Hear me. If you are a disciple of Jesus, if you have been bought with the blood of Christ, and you are looking for a concert-like experience, I just want to lovingly release you. There are churches that do the lights and the music and the entertainment far better than we do. That will probably never be our primary focus. So if that's what you're looking for, bless you. Seriously, be blessed to go find a church like that. That's just not what we're going to be about. I'm not kicking you out. We want you here. But if you're not going to jump in on the mission of Christ and you just want to come consume, that's not what we're going to be about. The second step, I would say, is to find out how you've been gifted. Where your talents and your passions align, you should be paying attention. You can try those spiritual gift tests or jump into our networks group the next time we run one. And if you're spiritually mature, if you've been doing this thing for a while, I want to encourage you. Would you call out things that you see in other people? I believe that this is one of the best ways to find out where your giftings lie. To have someone that is a little bit older or been on this journey a little bit longer to look at you and say, hey, I see fill in the blank in you. You are such an encourager. No matter what the situation is, you're always building people up. Hey, man, you have such a way of making people feel at home no matter wherever they are. I think you might have the gift of hospitality. Or when you talk about what you're learning in the Bible, you so clearly and seemingly easy, easily break down the passage, what it's saying, and can help others figure out the meaning of the text. Man, I think you might have the gift of teaching. Do you see how life-giving that can be? So I encourage you, find someone. Look at them in the eye and say, I see this in you. And it'll build them up to go step into their gifts. The final step I would say is just to look around. Where are the needs in your relationships? What are the needs of your coworkers? What are the needs in your neighborhoods? Where are there opportunities to love as you've been loved by Christ? How can you take what, you've been what we've been practicing here for years out onto the field? Because this primarily doesn't actually take place here. We would love if you want to jump into King's Kids or Forge and serve our kids, or you want to serve on the ushers or greeters or hospitality. We would love if you want to get on board here. But all of what I'm talking about primarily takes place out there. It is becoming increasingly rare that non-believers are going to walk through those doors and check out what we're doing here. So if we're going to get on the mission of Christ and be disciple-makers, loving and sharing the incredible news that is Jesus Christ, it's going to be out there in the world where we live our day-to-day -day lives. And also, don't let the fear of messing up or struggling in your gifting keep you from the mission. Trust me, we are all going to blow it from time to time. Remember that baseball team I was talking about? We were playing a game in Uxbridge one time. I was up to bat, and I cranked a 350-foot bomb over center field. Just a little bit of gloating. <laughs> First home run I had ever hit. I rounded the bases, 
My entire team is out at home plate to celebrate with me. I get into the dugout, riding cloud nine. Before I could sit down, the umpire called me out. Amidst all the excitement and the celebration, I guess I ran by home plate without touching it. Talk about a mood killer. I'm not saying that when you step out onto the field, everything is going to be light and breezy, and you're just going to jump from mountaintop to mountaintop without ever failing. The mission of Christ is a fight. We are going to stumble and mess up and run right by home plate. But when you learn from those mistakes and get back on the field, God will use you in your imperfections. Now, I know that I've been fairly direct this morning. But I want to be careful that you don't leave here thinking, well, that sounds like all zeal but no joy. Just get out of the stands and onto the field or else. See, the thing is that this is actually some of the best news I could share with you. You were created to glorify Christ and to be on mission with everyone else for his sake. Because Jesus created you, and you were created with that purpose in mind, there's no other place that you're going to find fulfillment in your life other than when you step on the field. There is so much joy when you are created in God's will and living your life for his mission. Your job, your family, your marriage, your hobbies, everything else falls short compared to being on mission with Christ. So if you want to find true joy, true peace in the midst of anxiety, the hardships, the heartache of this world, this is where you're going to find it. You have been created for this purpose. And it is one of the only places that you're going to ever find true joy and true peace in this lifetime. So again, while I have been a bit abrupt this morning, it is because I love you. I want to see you all filled with joy. Stepping into all that God has created for you. Flourishing in his mission, in your, sorry, in his mission for you. As I wrap up, I want to invite the worship team back up here. I want to talk about what this looks like super practically. If you're ready to get out of the stands and get onto the field, but don't know where to start, here are a few practical things that you could start today or this week. First and best thing I could advise you is to get into a small group. We're not a huge church, but we're big enough that it's easy to get lost and miss out on community if you're not intentional. Small groups are the best way to build meaningful, lasting relationships that will become family. It's also the best way to work through struggles, ask questions, be known, be accountable to the mission of Christ, and to work together for common goals. 1 Peter 5.8 says, The enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. See, in nature, a lion will always hunt the animal that's on its own. It avoids herds because animals, sorry, it avoids herds of animals because the lion will be attacked by the herd, and the, the herd will protect itself. If you're on your own, you're open up to the enemy. As I've said, the Christian faith is a fight. 
But if you're not already, get into a small group. Fight the good fight of faith together. Don't try and do this thing alone. Second, you can find a place to serve here at NAC. Children's, first impressions, worship, hospitality. Again, it's not the primary way, but if you've got to get started, come get started here. Another practical uh, starting point is to figure out your spiritual gifts, which we talked about. If you don't already know them, figure them out so that you can get, sorry, so you can know better what God wants to use you in. Another idea is to just think outside this building. Look for the needs around you. Be Jesus to the people in your life. Here's a really practical one. At lunchtime, put your phone down and talk to your colleagues. You may have worked with people for years and never really gotten to know them. Their story, some things they may, they may, they may need ministering to. So get to know the people in your life. Find an outside organization. We've got TLC, The Shop, Teen Challenge, 360 Kids, Bridge North are just a few of the amazing organizations in our neighborhood that are already serving our community. You don't even have to be creative. Just hop on board with something that they've started. I'm just spitballing ideas. There are so many ways that we can love our community. Just look around, and if you see a need, meet it in Jesus' name and see how he can use you. Jesus died on the cross and rose again three days later to pay for every one of your sins that you just couldn't do. And then shortly after that, he ascended to heaven. He left his mission with us to go into the world and make disciples. There is no plan B. As broken and messed up as we are, we're it. The chorus of this next song that we're going to sing perfectly encapsulates our journey. It says, holy, there is no one like you. There is none besides you. Open up my eyes and wonder. Show me who you are and fill me with your heart. And lead me in your love to those around me. See, our faith journey begins looking at Jesus and surrendering to him as the only true Lord and Savior. And then once we're on this journey, we begin to learn his ways and he fills us up with his spirit. And then we take our experiences and his good news out to those around us, revealing his love for them through the way that we love them. Let's pray. Jesus, would you fill us up with your spirit? Would you reveal to us the giftings that you've blessed us with for your sake? Jesus, for many of us, we've been sitting in the bleachers for years, consuming and offering a little back. Would you help us get out of the cheap seats and onto the field to use our giftings and our weaknesses and our practicing church for years and years and help us find a place where we can use it all to make disciples and glorify you? Jesus, would you lead us in your love to love those around us? In Jesus' name.